you may feel that you were born and you're constantly frightened, you're very sensitive, and you may be thinking, look, nothing happened to me, what's wrong with me? <laughs> and it may well be the untold stories, the secrets, the traumas of the generations that came before you. So it's wise to kind of, you know, do a Sherlock Holmes and find out what has been untold. Welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. My name's Helen Russell, I'm a journalist and author, and each episode I'm joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences of how to be sad well. Julia Samuel is a psychotherapist, grief counsellor, and pioneer of paediatric psychotherapy. She founded the charity Child Bereavement UK. You'll know her from her amazingly insightful and empathetic work, and perhaps also from coverage of her close friendship with Princess Diana and her sons. She's godmother to Prince George, and apparently likes to give him large, noisy presents with many complicated pieces. A little like family. A jigsaw of many complicated pieces. Julia has four children of her own, nine grandchildren, a husband of 42 years, but she also came from a family that never talked about their emotions. Julia began exploring her own family stories in adulthood, and now she shares all she's learned. Julia was formative in my research for the book How To Be Sad, when we talked about my family, relationships and their impact, and I've heard from a lovely lot of you telling me Julia was one of your favourite interviewees. So I was beyond excited by Julia's new book, Every Family Has A Story about the place we love and hate the hardest and the only relationship we can never leave. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. I would love to ask first, having followed your work for a while, what made you want to write this book now? Every client that has ever walked through my door, whatever the presenting issue, has spent great tracts of time talking about their family of origin or the family that they're making, as have I. And I felt we spent too long focusing on the individual and maybe even parenting, but not enough about the family system and certainly not nearly enough about the generations, how patterns and behaviours and relationships get passed down from generation to generation. So I really wanted to examine that by working with three and four generation families. It feels quite radical for anyone who hasn't read the book, this, this idea that actually we need to be starting earlier, we need to be dealing with the family before you get onto the individual issues. Has it shifted your perspective on, on the way you work, I wonder? Yes, I mean, I think there is definitely a place for individual work because you need the kind of time and space not to think about or worry about what everyone else is thinking about you. So I, I don't think it's saying that we shouldn't have individual work. I think is that it's a huge part of ourselves and how we come to be who we are that hasn't been included in our understanding of ourselves. And that also that families are the kind of bedrock of our lives when they work well. And we need to kind of give them time and attention, but they're also a constantly changing process through age. You know, your, your children growing up or having a baby or someone dying or leaving home. 
so that they constantly need updating and how we are with each other. And I think we ignore that complexity and kind of think you just trudge on being the same. But actually families that thrive are ones that do adapt and change through time and have all these aspects that I talk about in the book of kind of good communication, fighting productively, knowing how to love, which love is not a soft skill. It's hard. I like that. I like the idea of it being a hard hard one as well, I guess. And, and I know that when you grew up, there were a lot of losses that were not spoken of. Can you tell me more about these? Yeah, so my parents um, were children of survivors of the First World War. So they were kind of brought up in trauma. And then my mother, by the time she was 25, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died and all died suddenly and traumatically. And my father the same. His father and his brother died suddenly and traumatically by his mid-twenties. So there was seven traumatic deaths and all I knew was the black and white photographs around the house. They never told stories, they never talked about them. I actually never saw a photograph of my grandfather on my maternal side until last year. And I do think you know, and that was all they knew how to do. They had to survive and get on, to shut down, forget and move forward. And that was the pattern and that's all that was available to them. But I kind of felt as a child and growing up, and certainly now as I look back, that it certainly fermented me as a therapist because I was aware that there was so much that wasn't said, so much that was kind of being expressed through emotions but was actually disconnected from the causes of the emotions. And I wonder culturally then, if you're growing up in a family where talking about these emotions is not the norm. Which it isn't for many families of my generation. Of course, and nor, nor mine for, <laughs> for many. But, but I wonder, when did you meet resistance then when you started to talk about these things? You reference an AA meeting in the book as one of the first places you saw people speaking openly and honestly about their experiences. What was that like? It was an absolute revelation. (laughs) I had no idea that people could put words to what they felt. And I didn't say a word for at least a year. I just sat there listening and kind of taking it all in and learning, learning from everybody around me from their kind of lived experience. And it was my first step into being a therapist, really. And when we spoke for my book, How To Be Sad, we talked about the importance of telling even quite young children the truth about what's happening and and talking about emotions and especially around losing a child and baby loss. And and I wondered, did this approach inspire the setup of Child Bereavement UK? The the thing that inspired Child Bereavement UK was my job at um, St Mary's Paddington, where I supported families where babies died. And what I realised was that both at the time of the loss, how the news is broken to you, the information you're su- and support you're given at the time of the death, and then the support you're given following the death has a huge impact on your capacity to manage such an enormous and devastating loss. And there was very little available. So that was the roots of Child Bereavement UK. And changing from the idea of, well, just get on with it, to actually mourning that loss. Is that right? It's, you encourage people to have photographs and, and, and try and make more of, I guess, ceremony or ritual. Would that be the way 
way to describe it to to mourn what you have lost. Yes, and I think the sort of step before that is that by having photographs, by having memories of holding the baby that's died or being with the child that's died, which goes against your kind of instinct, your instinct is, you know, what I don't see isn't going to hurt me. But actually the reality is that the task of mourning is to face the reality of the loss. And if you have no experience of it, if you have no memories of it, no visceral kind of bodily you know, having touched the child, seen the child, have a photograph of you and the child. It's slightly crazy making because you know that something is really badly wrong, but you've got no kind of content in present day language to kind of make sense of it for yourself. And how we adapt in grief is that pain is the agent of change. So by having a memory of that painful experience, kind of forces us to go through that adaptation process, moving in and out of it. It's very interesting hearing yeah, the task of mourning and your earlier book, Grief Works. It, it is work, isn't it? I mean, you're very honest about this will take work. And you're also delightfully honest about what you do and do not know and, and the work that you're still doing. I wondered if that came as a surprise to people in this book, especially talking about all of the, the research you're doing, the work you're doing on your own preconceptions, perhaps, or, or just the, the task of, of going into a relationship with somebody as a therapist and as somebody coming to a therapist to work together. I think I was quite surprised by how collaborative it is. Yeah. Well, you know, it's very intimately relational. <laughs> and so if I don't keep myself both present emotionally and informed and have a kind of deeper understanding by from what I've read or the research that I do, then I can't meet my client accurately and attune to them and their needs. If I come with sort of assumptions, I mean, you can be ignorant because you can't know everything, but I, I need to kind of acknowledge my ignorance. And also you, you Clients do sometimes like teaching you, but sometimes they really just want you to know. <laughs> um, and they trust you more if they feel like you have done the work, particularly in areas of sensitivity. You know. Yes, and there are eight family case studies in the book, including a gay couple adopting a daughter, an ultra-Orthodox family of an Auschwitz survivor, the daughters dealing with their father's death by suicide... I wonder how did you choose the case studies and and what you learnt from from I guess those those three really stood out for me as, as ones where actually there was an awful lot of work that you had to do for yourself to be able to help them. I mean, some of the families chose me in that I was working with them already and I invited them to would they participate in being part of my book? Um, and obviously every case study, the families consent and read the case study before I even send it to my editor. So they're, they're fully kind of on board with it. And then others, I wanted to touch on issues that I thought were kind of very relevant to today. So the, the Berger family, I was very interested in both difference, being ultra-Orthodox Jews and how we make so much assumptions about groups or communities that we don't know very much about, but also transgenerational trauma that I worked with four and five generations of this family and, you know, looking at what gets passed down from generation to generation, the, the sort of 
research shows that the pain and the difficulty that isn't processed in one generation gets passed down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And so I really wanted to look at that. The gay couple, I because I work 25 years in the NHS with heterosexual couples, I mean, I never came across a gay couple in the whole of my time. And I think that's partly because uh, many less gay couples when I worked there were having children, or maybe they didn't have ch- children die. I don't know. But so I, you know, the, our landscape of families is changing, thankfully, and adapting to the population that we have, which is that gay couples are getting married, they want families, however they they make those families, whether it's through adoption or through surrogacy or all the different ways that they can do that. And I wanted to be inclusive. I wanted to tell their story. You do so beautifully. Oh, thank you. The, The Orthodox Jewish family you work with, I was really interested by the resistance they had to the term therapy. They were much more comfortable thinking of it as a conversation. I wonder, is there often resistance? Is that something you'd come across before? I mean, I I do think actually, too, in, you know, different communities. So I was at a, a meeting yesterday talking about race and diversity and inclusion. And so for one, racialized communities, if you talk about mental health or counselling, this is what I was told you know, they're much less willing to come forward. If you talk about well-being, they'll come forward. So I think some of it is the sort of attached experience of mental health that those particular communities have Mm. um, and assumptions people make. And the stigma is mainly the thing that's attached to them. So, um, and that there must be something wrong with you. If you're having psychotherapy, there's something wrong with you and that's your failure. And it's something to be ashamed of or it's something that you get judged for or that you might get penalised for. And so I think it really depends from where you come from, how you interpret the words. And the thing, you know, if you look at all the research about counselling and psychotherapy or befriending, volunteering, is that it's the quality of the relationship that matters and that that's what produces good outcomes for the people that come for support. Um, And that is what matters most. Rather than the terms that you're using. Yeah. Okay. And and you mentioned transgenerational trauma. Can you tell me a bit more about epigenetics and, and inherited trauma and I guess the difference between the two for anyone new to the terms and, and how often we see this play out? So there are two ways of passing down trauma. And one is behavioural so that Trauma that isn't processed, that's still kind of in the amygdala, you know, the body remembers, the body holds the score. So people still have flashbacks. They still are in a very heightened state. They will develop coping mechanisms to block them. And many of them would be negative coping mechanisms like using alcohol or food or gambling or sex to block the pain. And they will be in a heightened state, so they're more likely to be angry or to get very upset or to feel scared very quickly. And that pattern of behaviour, children learn from what they observe, that would get passed down to the next generation. But also epigenetically, through the genetics in our womb, genes get switched on and off. If you're in a very heightened state when you're pregnant through trauma, that can get passed down through the womb to the next generation. And 
you know, with PTSD, so many people can have a traumatic event, according to the research, only 10% will have PTSD. So people will sort of have memories of it. They may have flashbacks for six or eight weeks, but they won't go on long term to have PTSD. In epigenetics, I don't think we know the percentage, but I think what they're saying at the moment is that the epigenetic influence it lasts for three generations. So, you know, your your heightened state. So one of the things I kind of say to people, you may feel that you were born and you're constantly frightened, you're very sensitive, and you may be thinking, look, nothing happened to me, what's wrong with me? <laughs> and it may well be the untold stories, the secrets, the traumas of the generations that came before you. So it's wise to kind of you know, do a Sherlock Holmes and find out what has been untold. It's so huge that I can totally empathise and understand why there is resistance, why people feel it's too big, it's too much, it's it's daunting, right? I mean, the the pain that's necessary, there needs to be some level of strength and courage there to be able to face that, doesn't there? Yes, I mean, the thing is, by allowing us, there is the paradox, by allowing ourselves to feel the pain is how we heal. And I'm not suggesting that you kind of dive in to the pain and stay there permanently <laughs> until you kind of, you know, something changes. It's a movement. So emotions and feelings are wired to give us information, to come through our body, to give us information and to release us. When we block them, we don't learn from them. So we use a lot of psychological and emotional energy to block that information. And then, of course, we live in a much narrower bandwidth. So if you have pain one end and joy the other end, if you block the pain, you block the joy. So you're paying a price for not feeling it. And the way I work with people and actually the way we are as human beings is that we oscillate, we move in and out of it, so that if you can find support from other people and support within yourself to allow that wave of pain to come through your body and release, it then frees you to kind of feel calmer mm -hmm. and get on with your day, have a break from the grief, do things that distract you or that you enjoy, do some work, and then you move back to the pain. So you move between the two. Obviously, in the first weeks or months of a, a difficult time in your life, it's much more intense. But we have this incredible wired adaptability that if we support ourselves, we can adapt and change. And then the levels of pain change. That's really interesting, the idea that we pay the price in a narrower bandwidth of our, of our entire life, I guess. And could you explain the, the principle of, of rupture and repair? Is that connected? Yes. Well... It's, it's connected to so many things, is that it's really connected to love and to families and also to trauma because the underlying foundation of families is having an abundance of love. And as I said before, love is not an easy thing that we kind of assume it is. It isn't kind of fairies and Disney. It's loving, being able to show love, to receive love, to step back with love, to hold with love, to kind of bear, you know, the difficulty of love. And where we love most, we hate most and fight hardest. And that's where 
we need rupture and repair. So where you love people, you're not indifferent. You know, indifference is the opposite of love, not hate. And you spend t most time with the people you love. So you are going to fight small fights about the bins, big fights about enough time and attention, or I don't feel loved enough, all of those things. And so we need to build within that relationship and certainly within that family system ways of both fighting and finding ways of fighting that doesn't blow up the other person but says what our experiences is, expresses our emotions, feels angry, but also this capacity to repair afterwards that you, which may take a couple of days or a few hours, where you come back and you look at the fight and what was really going on and understand each other better and deeper from the fight and trust more and feel closer after it. Okay, yeah, indifference is the opposite of love. And if, if family is meant to be this safe place where we learn about love, there's a profound effect when it doesn't or it isn't. Can you talk a little about how this might present or manifest? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, in, in many of the case studies, that, that was the case. You know, Archie, who was a, a, a man in his mid-50s who um, had an inoperable, inoperable brain tumour and, you know, he was given a, sh a short time to live. He was brought up in a very inconsistent, critical, controlling adverse environment mm. where he could never trust what mood his particularly his mother was going to be in and so that his template of love came from that and he took that into his first relationship into his parenting his relationship with himself but actually he learned and he changed but uh, he had to to stop seeing his parents because they disturbed him so much by the way you know he's when he was told that he was going to die and his mother heard she said well he's always been a difficult child you know everything was about her oh so painful reading that part yeah oh and so sometimes as painful as it is we do have to end our relationships with um, those closest to us. But it's never like that's for free. It's not like you forget and move on. I mean, he talked about his family every time I saw him. And yeah, his lovely fiance. I was very happy about her. He's still alive, by the way. Oh, is he? Oh, wonderful. So he gets to read it. That's great. Yes, no, he's, he read it, yeah. And so we all have these roles in our family. But when we, you know, like Archie, when we leave home and start our own family, this can be tricky if we haven't addressed these but I wonder on the flip side as a mother of three small people how can we parent to mitigate this I know people who've gone through their whole life being well I'm the youngest child so that's my personality like what do we do about that <laughs> I mean I think one of the things is kind of updating your database is that you at 70 when you're with your siblings you can be the youngest child or the middle child or the eldest child but that you need to change and develop new roles and ways of being when you're a parent, when you're out in the world. And I think, you know, I think the sibling relationship has been very under-focused on and how it impacts us. And you can behave like the, the, the youngest child or the good child or the, the mediator at work. You can have sibling rivalry with your husband about your children's love. So I think the first step is re being aware of what your tendencies are and kind of going, oh, 
are those really working for me <laughs> now that I'm, you know, I've got a job here and I'm married to here? You know, maybe I need to kind of examine that so that I kind of recognise that I can develop and find new ways of being in my new circumstances. That's interesting. I wonder, I'd be so fascinated to, to find out what percentage of people manage to update their database in that way. I see it around <laughs> me quite a lot that people perhaps haven't yet. I mean, one of the things that I shouldn't be critical, but I am, is that one of the things that drives me nuts is when I hear from clients about their parents who are still children, who have never grown up. And they've never kind of fully allowed themselves to become adults and mature. Um, they behave like a four-year-old. Can we talk attachment theory next, perhaps? So for anyone who doesn't know, John Bowlby, or you can explain it better. <laughs> John Bowlby for beginners, how would you summarise? So what John Bowlby researched and formed a theory on, which has become the basis of all of our understanding for our kind of sense of ability to have good relationships throughout the world, is the theory of attachment. And he talks about, in generalised terms, secure attachment where the parents are predictable, loving and secure and can connect when there's something goes wrong and insecure where the parent might be avoidant, they might be anxious, they might be ambivalent. And that that sets the temp. So children learn from what they witness and what they experience and they take that insecure template into their future relationships again with their relationship with themselves with in love relationships and in all of their relationships so it forms the foundation stone of how you connect and what we also know very clearly is that the quality of our relationships the capacity to be loved and loved is what forms the happiness in our lives, you know, that when people look back on their lives, it's the how much they've been loved, not how much money they've made. And so it's an absolutely vital part of who we are. I find that so fascinating and it makes perfect sense. But having lived in Scandinavia now for nearly 10 years, I'm very interested in the in the what it means in practice, because in, in Scandinavia and, and in the Netherlands to a large degree, under the age of one, Children are often looked after by someone who is not their parent. They may be in daycare because the Scandinavian countries wanted the mother's taxes, so it sent them back to work. And these countries often come top of the happiness scales. And I'm interested, I speak to psychologists in Denmark and some of them say, well, it's fine. Everybody here is still has good, good attachment styles. And but, but some say, well, actually, I think we are storing up problems for the future. I'm interested in, in your views on that. I mean, it's impossible for me to say really from a distance because it's very unique. And, you know, you part of what makes you is also the blueprint of your biology and your genetics, that you have a predisposition that then is iterative in the, the secure attachment or insecure attachment. So you may be born more sensitive and then so you'll need more love and attention to kind of feel safe. Or you may be born naturally more resilient so that you don't need so much. But what I would imagine is that there is a very secure, loving environment, both in the daycare and at home when the children come home. So it isn't about always having your parents. It's about having a predictable, loving environment. And, that you know, I, I definitely agree with this idea of a village. 
that, you know, the more people that we have that give us inputs into our lives, whether it's pe people that work in our day centres, whether it's our neighbours, whether it's cousins, whether it's friends that we make family, we get more understanding of the different types of people, how to interact with different types of people, and we get more love. You know, I think one of the, the biggest things is the scarcity of it rather than abundance. Um, and it isn't just our parents. One of the things I've really noticed is having, I mean, that does, the parents is the key, but also it's what happens to you if you get bullied at school, that can really influence you. Yes, that's interesting. I, I liked your, your part about taking a village, although it's quite, it's, it made me a little anxious, the idea, I think you mentioned about eight was the minimum of people you needed to care about your child and it and it makes sense in Scandinavia and in hunter-gatherer communities I've been researching that the idea is that the more people that love your child the better which which does make sense but I wonder actually looking at it how many nuclear families could say that they actually have eight people to form their micro village these days what do you think I mean I, you know I, loneliness and isolation is you know on the rise single parent families are on the rise and so, you know, I think it is a risk. It's if you're looking at a family, the risk of how many people support them and who can be there for them. You know, it just makes sense that if you're, if you're called into work when you're meant to be looking after your child or your child is sick, if you have a neighbour, a classmate, a, a mum, <laughs> a sister, a friend that can help you, then you don't panic. You know, if you have a lot of people on your dial list, then you can kind of sort it out. If you're kind of left stuck alone, then that, you know, really accelerates your fear around that. And what am I going to do? And then you transmit that to the child and it just, you know, escalates. And I wonder, post-pandemic as well, have you noticed loneliness on the rise in your work? I've certainly noticed anxiety. And the devastation of the pandemic, I think, will be the currency in our therapy rooms for years to come. You know, I don't, you know, there's a, there's definitely a mental health pandemic, which was coming before, but it's been accelerated by, by the health pandemic. And loneliness is part of it. The, the cost of isolation for people was terrible. And for young people, for older people, for, you know, there wasn't anyone that didn't feel it. I mean, what the research shows in the UK was a third of families flourished because they were on furlough, they maybe had enough money, they had time together, they enjoyed the spring and the summer and they could, well, they weren't commuting, they weren't stressed out. And so they felt they had more time for relationships and connection than they had before. And it felt like this magic boon time. But that leaves two thirds that didn't. Although I was interested in your book, actually, you were quite positive about having to do therapy online, about Zoom, that I think, were you expecting that to be a big barrier to connection? I mean, I think it's a different experience. I, so I had been doing it online for quite a few years, so it wasn't completely new to me. But every, you know, apart from a couple of sessions at the beginning of the relationships, all of the therapy that I did in this book was online. And I would never have got that number of people in a room at the same time. You know, the, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish family, five generations in my room, this would not have happened. And, and the Afro-Caribbean family, I think the same. So although it ha you, know, you have things like Wi-Fi breaks and you, they, you look up their nose rather than their face. <laughs> um, There's always one. <laughs> but there was also more intimacy. You see them wandering around, making a cup of coffee. You know, you see their other family members. 
it really worked. I mean, I felt it worked and I felt we did really good therapy. So that that's the test for me. I loved the you referenced, I think, the little girl of one of the families that you were because you were in her home and it was during a pandemic when perhaps she didn't see that many new faces that you were just almost part of the family. So hello, Julia, jumping up and down on the sofa. That's so nice. I wonder whether you talk about Ivo, a man who came from a very privileged family, but but actually you you make the point that pain is still pain, however privileged and assumptions about him might have been misleading. I wonder whether speaking to, I guess, how do I say this politely, kind of quite alpha men, often during the pandemic and when they are having to uh, conduct themselves over Zoom, people can often go into meeting mode, and women too, but can go into meeting mode and therefore be more perhaps aggressive or more in in work mode rather than opening up and expressing vulnerabilities. I wonder whether that was something you had to be conscious of. Funny enough, for therapy, I think people do in some way emotionally prepare themselves. So they may be defensive and they may be a bit nervous. But Ivo, you know, he didn't want to have to deal with this stuff. (laughs) He did not want to come to therapy. And most people don't want to be suffering enough to come to therapy. Most people would like it all just to wake up in the morning and everything to be a happy day. Um, You know, no one chooses to do this, but he... He couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't work it out without someone like me to support him and manage him, normalise his feelings, explain himself to himself, give him new insights to himself, give him ways of coping with himself um, enough that he could then cope with the sort of blast of difficulty that he was facing. But people would walk into the therapy room like that. I don't think they do it more on Zoom. I mean, people walk backwards into my therapy room, (laughs) you know. I mean, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, but I wonder how that feels to do a job that you know people are always going to be grateful for at the end, but that they don't want to see you. I mean, that must be quite challenging at times. Well, it is, it is challenging. I mean, but, but they show up. Mm. Funny enough, the thing I find much more difficult is when people cancel and they don't show up and then I don't really know what's going on. So once they walk through the door, I'm happy. because then we can work out whatever it is that's going on when they create all sorts of scenarios that mean they come in incredibly late and they only have 10 minutes or all of that I find much much more challenging really because I can't help them support them to work out how to be different or how to deal with what the real difficulty is and I read um I read an interview where I think someone you mentioned that someone commented that they didn't expect you to be so emotional as as a psychotherapist and and I wonder how you how you manage that because of course these are incredibly emotive stories I was in feeling all of the highs and lows reading the book how how do you balance yourself in that way I mean, some of it is habits, you know, so I take a lot of exercise, I cycle and I run and I do yoga and I meditate and I kickbox. So, you know, just the physicality of it. I make sure that in my free time, I do things that are enriching. You know, I in the past, it would have been going to exhibitions or movies. And I, you know, I only watch happy telly. I will never watch really kind of terrible stories people always want me to watch these devastating films (laughs) it's like never no 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 I am not going to watch that and I have developed good boundaries so I you know really difficult stories or I feel that there's something that I've done wrong or something I'm really worried about do disturb me and come into my home life you know I carry them with me Of, of course I do because we're not machines 
But on the whole, I kind of really recognise the boundary between I'm there to support that person for them and to them, but I am not them. You know, I have not stepped into their world. This is not my loss or difficulty. I'm there to meet them in theirs, um, but not to think that it's mine, which I think you can do sometimes because emotions are contagious. So you can be hit by somebody else's massive wave of, of feeling and it sort of feels like it's yours. So part of the job as a therapist is to recognise that that is there and it's influenced me and it influences my response to them but also to find ways of metabolising it so I don't take it into my own relationships and my own life. Yes, the, the boundaries thing. I had lunch with a friend yesterday who has three psychotherapists for parents and and she said that she's often just sort of kind of either getting advice or, or there is an assumption by her friends that she will know everything and be completely sorted because she has all of this support and, and this experience around her. I wonder what impact writing this book and the work you do has on your own family? I really annoy them, like every parent. <laughs> but that's the job as part of the family. Fail them, make mistakes, infuriate them. And I think they, I mean, they really do know that they're loved. And when I published the book, um, I wrote them all a letter owning my my failings and weaknesses, but also saying how much I love them. And I, you know, I hope that they enjoyed the book. And I think they they appreciate that I've done some of the work, so I'm not passing on down stuff that I inherited. <laughs> and two of my children are therapists. So um, I have a daughter that's a child psychotherapist and a daughter that is an adult psychotherapist. So there are three ther- psychotherapists in, in our family too. That's fascinating. Wow. <laughs> I can't even imagine sort of family gatherings, everyone amassing information. And <laughs> no, I mean, we're the same as... Honestly, we don't psych each other. You know, and if they if they if they think I'm doing it, they call me on it. Mum, yeah, yeah, don't <laughs> yeah. Your mum right now, and you write about the the importance of of mother daughter relationships and and our approach to emotions. Have I got that right? Can you expand on that if I have? So I th- I don't think it's just mother daughter. Although you know there is a unique thing between a mother and a daughter, and a mother and a son, and a father and a son. You know, when you're the same gender, I think. It has its own unique kind of tendencies. And I think the thing I was talking about was when they are codependent relationships where you don't deal with separation and feelings and you don't have enough interdependence. I don't think there's independence. I think where we affect each other and we need to affect each other. But I think the codependence is when you're constantly one person is trying to sort the other one out or please them and the other one is sort of worrying about the other one. And so that that can really halt your development and your capacity to be robust. That sounds very familiar. I, what, is that pretty common? in? I'm thinking of sort of mother-daughter relationships especially, especially sort of single parents and, and only children. I'm speaking from my own experience, but there is a lot. You're tied, your lives are tied up with each other and you want to, uh, yeah, that, that sort of fixing tendency seems I see all around me yeah I mean I think it's very very common and of course like with all things there's a spectrum and there can be times in your life so there can be times when you are more codependent because there's a lot of pressure that one of you is suffering more and there are times in your life where you feel like oh we're doing pretty well we're kind of more interdependent and so 
all of these things, you move in and out of them, like families. I don't think there is ever a family that is always functioning. You're kind of moving on a spectrum of function and dysfunction, depending on what is happening to you and what the pressures are on you or the other members of your family and that you all affect each other. Um, and that was one of the things I was really trying to say is that we need to kind of work as a family system because we have such an impact on each other. And we can, when we fully understand that and can allow difference, can allow distress to be voiced by everybody and not just one person, you know, that we share the load and that kind of collaborative idea where you share power, where you share emotions, where you allow yourself to be who you are is incredibly resilience building. I think that the book is so powerful in, in so many ways, but even the idea that family therapy, I think many of us might think of it for people who've been through an extreme trauma. And of course, some of these people you are speaking to have been, but that actually it can benefit so many people or just talking, using the tools that you talk about in the book to just begin that dialogue seems so valuable. Yeah. I mean, it was so touching yesterday. Somebody who'd read my book went on Instagram and watched an IG live I did about siblings with her sister and there were three of them and they'd had quite a fractured relationship and they watched the IG live together and she said they had a conversation and a deep with a depth and a meaning they had never had their entire lives and they were in their late 60s. So it kind of just opened up a conversation and that's what I hope the book does is that people will read it and they'll read some of it or all of it and it will allow them to understand themselves a bit better and begin a conversation with their own members of their family that then expands and enriches those relationships. It's incredible. Yeah, it feels like a very good gift that every family member should buy for each other. Um, and what are you working on next? What, what's coming up? So my next project is under wraps, but it's a podcast and I hope to launch it in the autumn. Exciting. And I always end by asking my guests, knowing all you know now, what advice you would give your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well. And I feel like this question is, is uh, has added dimensions for you. I guess I, I know that you were newly married at, at 20. Did you have children by then? I had, I was, I had a, a baby at 21, yeah. My <laughs> daughter's 42. Wow. So what was life like at, at 21 and, and what was your approach to emotions then? So my approach to emotions then was... I was ignorant. I kind of was aware of them, but I couldn't have named them. I couldn't have... Now I could give you a kind of, you know, extensive description, <laughs> like different hues and subtleties and colours of my emotions. Then it was... I was quite a blunt instrument. I'm cross. I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know quite what I am. I was always quite loving. And so that has been my saving grace, really, that I've always been able to give love and receive love. You know, I feel grateful to that 20-year-old me that had the wisdom to marry someone who loved me, who I love, which is probably the best decision I ever made in my whole life. You know, 42 years later, we're still together and we had these amazing children. So I feel quite grateful for her sense, you know, for her kind of common sense or instinct mm -hmm. And I look at her with kind of warmth, like you have no idea what you kind of went on and did. You felt you were stupid. You didn't know what you do. You had no ambitions for a career. Um, you just thought you'd be a mum and your life turned out very different, which is amazing. That is amazing. And congratulations, 42 years, goodness. And is there anything that you wish she knew about, about how to be sad well or does she just need to find her own way, I wonder? I think, I, yeah, no, she definitely needed to know that being sad wasn't weakness. 
and it wasn't shaming and that she could be sad privately or with other people and get support and connection rather than feel you have to go and hide away and do it in a cupboard. That's very good advice for anyone at any age. Julia, thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you today. Lovely to talk to you, Helen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How To Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.